Hey guys, I'm Raf. And I'm James. On today's episode... Part 2 to the Psychiatrist Guide to... CBD. The weed is stronger now than it was in the 60s. That's a That's myth. That's a myth? Yeah, not true. Oh, hell yeah. Right? That you are the reincarnation of... It's on your business. talk to you about something all right and it might be it might be a shock to you but we can use cbd to treat addiction now what do you mean there's yeah it's very odd and there's a subset of people both in our world of psychiatry and not who this is going to sound very strange to now just generally speaking I will say that in psychiatry, we sometimes use a similar substance to treat addiction to a well-known substance. Methadone Mm -hmm. and Suboxone are opioids, and we use them to treat opioid use disorder. Now, sometimes people say, that sounds ridiculous. How could you possibly use the same thing to treat an addiction? And the answer is because we are making a safer more predictable formulation, which does occupy the same receptors, but activates them to a lesser extent. And we found that this is actually a more effective way to treat addiction than to simply cut people off Mm -hmm. and say, listen, you can't even go close to this substance anymore. There's a whole bunch of reasons we could talk about this for a million years. Right. I was going to say, like, specifically in that case, you know, methadone had such a bad stigma for a long time and it carried over to Suboxone. But the world is changing. Opinions are rapidly changing. And we need to do a whole episode on Suboxone and methadone, Mm. but we can't do it without Dr. Zerbel. Absolutely It would be a crime to not have her come on the show. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I mentioned this just to say that there is evidence to show that treating addiction with a similar substance in a controlled way and in a safe way is far superior to treating it with abstinence alone. Absolutely. And so in that regard, you can actually use CBD to treat cannabis dependence. Some There are some randomized controlled trials that show the benefit of something that we talked about in the last episode, Sativex. That's that THC-CBD combo in cannabis dependence. Mm-hmm. And there's other case reports that show the promise of even CBD alone for a cannabis dependence. I'm sure that would depend on the patient and what they were, you know, what the right. cannabis was giving them right. in terms of anxiety relief, so on and so forth. But it's interesting to see. Another thing to note is there was one randomized controlled trial where they did not show any decrease of cannabis use with CBD alone. So that's this is just to say that the evidence is mixed. Right. I think the bottom line, though, is that there's some evidence for Sativex, that, that combination of the THC and the cannabidiol, but there's poorer evidence for cannabidiol alone, which, you know, I think if you think back to our last episode, there's, there's kind of a theme coming exactly. out of all of this. On that, the other hand, CBD is in a psychoactive compound, 
Exactly. So yeah. you, even if the evidence at this point is not as good, you know, it's it's a lot more promising. And I think these things are going to change, you know, kind of hopefully kind of rapidly. I'm hopeful mm-hmm. for CBD for this kind of thing. Um, I think if we start parsing out, like you were alluding to, you know, patient populations, instead mm-hmm. of kind of throwing it at a huge group of people, like just because it doesn't work, you know, for that huge group of people doesn't mean that for a subset of people, it would be very effective. Very true. You know? Very true. And I think obviously we're just at the starting line here. I think that as marijuana becomes legalized in the United States. You mean and cannabis, as, right? As a cannabis becomes legalized. It's in the hard. States, I do it all the time. <laughs> I think that the stigma will decrease. As the stigma decreases, there's going to be a lot more research, not only because the stigma is decreasing, but because there's a lot of money to be made. And I think this is just the, we're just at the starting point here. It's also important to to note that there is some evidence that shows that you might be able to use CBD for tobacco dependence. Um, it, the evidence is poor. But, uh, you know, it is being looked at. Right. Um, which, would, that's, which would be great because, you know, we talked about tobacco use, you know, with the horrible effects in the previous episode on vaping. And I just have to interject. Did you see all the cases of kids ending up in the ICU because of vaping? Yes. It's really yeah. uh, concerning. Yeah. And again, it's because you don't know what's in there. Right. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll see. You know, we'll see. I'm, I'm sure that the great you know research will come from these cases Mm-hmm. And and we'll we'll find out what it was uh, you know what it is about the vaping that is making these kids sick and actually one yeah. of them died. Wow, yeah, it's really sad. But again, this is kind of like low grade evidence, though. It's just them, you know, kind of by process of, of elimination, saying we have all of these kids around the country that have in common that they vaped and they had a similar condition. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. But I, I felt like I had to mention that we talked a lot about how vaping was in in many ways safer than smoking cigarettes because cigarettes are so bad, but maybe vaping is worse in and of itself. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We're going to have to revisit that when more evidence comes out. It's certainly going to be interesting to watch going forward, especially as the marketing continues to go out of control and it continues to become a multi-billion dollar industry with huge percentages of kids even like in the early teens smoking and having it be a very kind of cool thing to do it's really sad that this is all happening you know what's really awesome i was just thinking um i I know it's terrible that you said something that was sad and then i said it's really awesome but what's really (laughs) awesome is i'm going to talk directly to you future listeners we're going to revisit all of these topics a couple of years from now most likely and Mm -hmm. We're going to sound like complete idiots in the, you know, in the first version of the episode. So I look forward to it. Hopefully we learn a little bit in the next couple of years. But for now, this is what, you know, we can find when we do research. I think that part of our job is being humble and being open to new research, being open to say, saying, you know, what the, the, the research that I've been functioning on is, has been shown up. And it's time to it's time to do something different. Yeah. And if if you can't do that, you're not going to be a good doctor. Yeah. So. And if you haven't noticed already, we try to we're like we're trying to stay kind of on the cutting edge, you know, of mm-hmm. psychiatry. These aren't like the classic, generally speaking, psychiatric topics. Mm-hmm. So you and I are very interested in kind of pushing the boundary and kind of moving things forward. So keep that in mind with a lot of our episodes. And on that note, how about? The use of CBD for psychosis. Well, let me tell you 
it's quite interesting because everyone knows that cannabis use, generally speaking, can kind of decrease the threshold for unmasking a psychotic process. So if you have a family history of schizophrenia, a strong family history, if you start to show some early signs, and that's, we should do a separate episode on that. We There's have to, really yeah. amazing research on, you know, what to look for. And there are people who specialize in, you know, people who are showing very early signs of schizophrenia, even before they're showing I have you know, to the say, stereotypical. I have to say that I've seen just kind of incidentally, I think three patients in the past year that another provider was like, you know, rule out like prodrome of schizophrenia, like when they were young and they went years without having like a psychotic break. And then they had the psychotic break. And based on what I was reading in the notes and even what I was seeing in the patients before the break, like I wouldn't have known, you know, this, this is very hard to predict, you know, what patients, you know, are going to suffer from this, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's why it's, it it really is in, in many ways, uh, its own specialty. And there are providers who do just this. I'm curious, in any of those cases, was cannabis involved? Um, I think they all said no, but Mm. who knows? You know, these were young guys, you know, so and their parents were involved in their life very heavily. So, you know, maybe they weren't being as honest. I don't know. It's it's really unfortunate. You know, the, the stigma of cannabis and of all drug use really negatively impacts our ability to prognosticate and to help our patients. Because unless you get really specific and unless you have a like a warm environment and unless you're ex- very accepting and unless you have the opportunity to establish rapport with these patients, they're just going to tell you what you they think you want to hear. Yeah. And, um, you know, rather than approaching it as, oh, OK, this guy's asking me about cannabis. I think he wants to help. People approach it as, OK, this guy's asking me about cannabis. I'm going to I'm going to make sure he knows that I'm that I'm like, you know, I'm lawful. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not doing anything bad. And I want, I want him to have a good opinion of me. And it's really unfortunate. So, yes. So we, you know, THC and cannabis can definitely unmask psychotic symptoms initially. Which, and not just that, you know, what we see all the time uh, is in the emergency room Mm -hmm. are patients who have a psychotic disorder. A lot of times they come in because they're not taking their medication and they relapse into a, you know, like real psychotic episode. But sometimes they're taking their medication and they, you know, smoke cannabis, Mm -hmm. even worse if it's laced with something else. But we see that a lot in the emergency room that patients with psychotic disorders use drugs like cannabis and they become frankly psychotic. Yeah. So this yeah. is, you know, this is not something that is really, in my mind, you know, a debatable topic. You know, cannabis doesn't cause schizophrenia, mm-hmm. as far as we know. But the people, you know, people did used to think that, and there probably are people that still think that. But certainly, like you said, it can unmask a psychotic disorder, I believe, mm-hmm. and it can also cause a relapse in, you know, psychotic symptoms in a patient that was otherwise stable. Sure. I mean, THC in healthy volunteers can cause. A transient, so it's going to go away. Um, psychosis, both positive symptoms, and by that I mean, you know, hallucinations, delusions, um, bizarre behavior, that kind of thing, as well as negative symptoms, a motivation, withdrawal, flat affect, so on and so forth. I think it's fascinating that it can do both in healthy people. Yeah. Um, right. th- that just, I think, goes to show you that this is this is not a benign. Yeah, substance. no, it's not. It's yeah, not. regardless of, of whether you think it should be legalized or not, this is 
a substance with serious and potentially deleterious effects, right. just like alcohol, you know? And so I think that you have to, you have to be, you know, fairly informed before you yeah. use it recreationally or certainly before you use it in a, for a medicinal purpose. Not um, to mention the variation of what you're getting, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. first of all, the THC concentration can vary pretty dramatically. And even worse is if it's laced with K2 or with PCP, which happens all the time, or dipped in embalming fluid, which we should do a whole nother episode on. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, kind of shocking how, fre- how frequently you see that. And, you know, so I think we talked last episode about how cannabis is lipophilic. And by that, I mean that it gets dispersed into the fat cells in your body, leaches out slowly. That's why for some people, depending on your body habitus, it can remain positive in a urine test for up to a month. Now, the difference between K2 or spice, which is synthetic marijuana and synthetic cannabis, rather, and natural cannabis like sativa, so on and so forth, those strains that we talked about before, is that K2 or synthetic cannabis, the there's a tail. If you can imagine the molecule, the, mo- the molecule is made up of two what we call benzene rings. So just two rings of carbon. Dude, this is organic chemistry, but why are you doing this? That was my <laughs> worst I want class to... in college. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. You, you, do you not want me to? No, I want to hear it. No, I'm just... Oh, okay, okay. I don't know why, I, you, I, why you're making me feel I think I'm, I'm giving RAF PTSD. I'm sorry, Yeah, bro. exactly. I'm sorry. All right, so cannabis has... Uh, that's why it's cannabidiol. It's two, two rings with an alcohol coming off of one of them. So you can imagine, you know, cannabis is two rings, and then there's a little tail of carbons coming off of one. Now, the longer that tail is, the more lipophilic the molecule becomes. And the reason why synthetic marijuana is distinct from normal marijuana is because that tail that comes off of it is artificially extended. And that's also why you can't legislate this substance is illegal because it's not one substance. You don't know if the tail is 20 carbons long or 100 carbons long. And it would be ridiculous to say, you know, all the molecules like this are illegal, which is why it's very hard to kind of regulate these things. The longer that tail is, and you don't know how long it's going to be, the more it's going to stay deposited in in the fat and the more unpredictable it is going to be when it leaves the fat cells, which is why we often see people who abuse K2 Mm -hmm. are not psychotic and they might go for a few days even without having any psychotic symptoms. And then all of a sudden, even though they haven't used in a few days, they're psychotic. And the reason is it's just, it's just happened. It just so happened that, you know, that unpredictable molecule leached out at that moment. And my understanding that, that those molecules stimulate the CB1 receptor much more strongly than the CB2 receptor, actually. Mm, And, you know, there's some, you know, you can kind of think of the CB1 receptor as the gas and the CB2 somewhat as the brakes. And if Mm. you're just, if you're just pressing the gas, you know, yeah, and it's no, it's it's no joke. You know, we've seen so many people on just K2, like, they're more psychotic than psychotic patients. I'm hoping that eventually, you know, talk about, we, we talk about stigma all the time. You know, like all things, there's there's good and bad. I'm hoping that the stigma of K2 and synthetic cannabinoids eventually rivals that of PCP. Because to be quite frank, there's not much difference in terms of the clinical picture mm-hmm. between someone who's intoxicated on PCP and occasionally patients who are intoxicated on synthetic cannabis. They look the same. Clinically. They look the same. Yeah. So I'm hoping that 
you know, and in some ways that the stigma will one day reach that level and people will kind of recoil, you know, at that, at the idea of anything being similar to PCP. But, you know, getting back to, you know, the topic at hand, in people who do have schizophrenia, there are definitely studies that show that there's higher levels of endocannabinoids. And those are just the cannabinoids that are made endogenously in your body, natively in your body. We talked in the last episode about how there's this whole system in our body and it's there for a reason. And it's because we make cannabinoids ourselves. And studies have shown that the levels of these endocannabinoids in the cerebrospinal fluid of patients with schizophrenia is actually higher. That is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. You know, not often discussed. Yeah, no, and, and it it's really interesting. It's kind of opens a lot of, you know, doors into understanding of psychosis because, yeah. you know, we we have this old dopamine hypothesis which we know is true, it contributes, but, you know, we also know that you can get psychotic from substances that stimulate other systems, like PCP, yeah. for example, which works on the NMDA receptor. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about the endocannabinoid system contributing or somehow being involved in schizophrenia. Like this mm-hmm. is a whole new kind of realm that we can really explore. You know, it's yeah. really fascinating. And we talked in the last episode about how certain formulations of CBT and, and THC and CBD can also affect the GABA system. And especially as we get older, one of the reasons why we say that you should really avoid benzodiazepines in the elderly is because it can worsen confusion and it can also induce a hallucinatory state. I've seen plenty of patients who come into the emergency room from the nursing home are prescribed some sort of uh, benzodiazepine gel that will work in in sedating the patient immediately, but with continued use and and overuse, you know, these people come in and they're hallucinating. So I I certainly think with regards to our schema of how we understand psychosis and schizophrenia, we're we're definitely looking at like only a small fraction of the, of the picture. And um, I think it'll be fascinating. Like I said, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, we're going to look back at this episode and we're going to laugh about, you know, why, what we thought about these, these things. Absolutely. And there's more, Um, there's more evidence, right? To show some sort of correlation with this, you know, cannabinoids and psychosis? So there are several case reports that show that both positive and negative symptoms with regard to schizophrenia can be modulated with CBD administration, either with or without antipsychotics. So this is interesting because CBD alone, even without any other medications on board, can reduce positive and negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. That's yeah, really um, there's two random uh, randomized controlled trials that have weaker results, however, and one showed that decrease in positive and negative symptoms of uh, schizophrenia wasn't statistically significant, and another showed that there was no improvement whatsoever. And like everything else we've talked about, I think the bottom line is that there's the beginnings of good evidence here, especially when you view it in relation to how the endocannabinoid system can be like intimately related with psychotic processes mm-hmm. but overall there just hasn't been the type of rigorous study that we need that you yeah. would need and the evidence at this point is poor it doesn't mean that this couldn't be a very rich vein of research in the future but with all of these things you know we, we're just not there in terms of our understanding yet. yeah and you kind of illustrated you know in a beautiful way um the way you you talk well, about thank you those different levels of and I regret saying it uh, <laughs> of research, right? So you said that there's case reports of CBD essentially treating, and then there's 
two randomized controlled trials, which is kind of considered the gold standard in medical mm. research. One of them didn't show any effect mm. and another showed effect, but it wasn't statistically significant. Yeah. And this so, is kind of the slow march of... Exactly. So we know like, it's doing something, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, clinicians are seeing it and they're reporting it in patients. Mm-hmm. But when you bring more patients together... You know, either the evidence is harder to tease out or you don't see the evidence at all, which suggests to me that there is a subset of the population that, you know, this may be very effective for. Right. Because schizophrenia isn't really one disease. It's really a syndrome. Right. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of things in psychiatry are really syndromes, if you think about it, because inherently the DSM, you know, we diagnose things by a cluster of symptoms. And yeah. there's, there's many ways to get to that cluster of symptoms. You're not, exactly. you're not, we're not really talking about one disease. You know, psychiatry is the frontier of medicine. We understand a lot and we have excellent treatments, but the brain is the most complicated organ in the body. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the next frontier in really understanding medicine yeah. and the human body. I, you know, I, my reference material that I, that I refer back to, the textbooks that I use, uh, the, I choose the one that I did because there's two chapters for every disorder. There's a chapter on the symptoms and how to treat it and basically the bread and butter of what we do. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, a chapter in a separate book about the neurobiology and the genetics and what what's book is actually that? going is that on. Is Kaplan? No, dude. No. Uh, Tasman? Yeah. First of all, the level of knowledge that's out there is is ridiculous. Yeah. Like for for the people who say we don't really know what schizophrenia is and we really don't even know where to start, that's absolutely not true. We know the genes that are involved. We know how the brain changes over time. Right. Even though the presentation may be distinct among several groups of people, we can even say, okay, this patient has this type of loss in this region of the brain when they're younger, and we can predict that if we were to do serial MRIs, we would see this. And this is all just to say, yes, these are very complicated diseases. They're constellations. And I think 20 years from now, we're going to know that schizophrenia is actually 60 different processes. And, or more. You know, who knows? Maybe the same treatments will, will play a role, but sure. we'll be able to tailor it. Exactly, you know. exactly. And that's kind of yeah. the, the way that medi- medicine is going in general. But again... Yeah. A whole nother podcast episode. Yeah, definitely. So tell me about CBD for dementia. There are several animal studies in which CBD has been shown to inhibit neuroinflammation through several mechanisms, including, but not limited to, inhibiting the action of glial cells. So you tell me why that might be useful in Alzheimer's disease. So... Oh, God. Pop quiz, bro. We talked about this in an episode. Oh, my like, God. Like last so episode I, or something. Two episodes so I know, ago. I know that glial cells are the mediators of inflammation in the brain. Yeah. And glial, glial cells will eventually lead to the presence of these plaques because what they're doing is that you, that you see in disease processes like Alzheimer's disease. And the reason for that is because they're, they're busting things down, they're cleaning things up, and they're... Right. Not doing it in the most efficient manner, and that can yeah. lead to these, you know, in a in a to, to not be as uh, detailed about it as I probably should be. That can lead to these these the uh, beta amyloid plaques right. that you see in the in yeah. Alzheimer's so you can disease. think you can think of the glial cells as kind of like the cleanup crew in the brain, 
Yeah. You know, inflammation is a good process normally. It's when it goes wrong. Sure. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're going, they're working on overdrive, trying to fix the problem. And eventually, mm-hmm. you know, they, they get overwhelmed and they become the problem, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. if CBD can decrease that kind of, this is very similar to what we were talking about in the ketamine episode. If they can kind of decrease that neuroinflammation from happening, of course, you know, they could be beneficial in Alzheimer's. So we'll yeah. see. But again, yeah. these are animal studies. This is very preliminary. There's also some interesting research in Parkinson's. And this is really fascinating to me. How does Parkinson's work? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, oh man, you, you're, just, you're just cruel today. I'm plump- you just have a cruel streak in I'm you. I'm plumping the neurology questions to you. You, you <laughs> came out with Dravet syndrome and, you know. Yeah, you, I know. You want to be I Mr. Did. Neurology and calcium cells and <laughs> benzene rings and all this stuff. So let's hear I it. know. All right. So in Parkinson's disease, there's a particular, there's a particular cluster of dopaminergic neurons kind of lower down in the brain. We call it the nigrostriatal tract. And Parkinson's disease happens when the dopaminergic neurons in that pathway start to break down. If you were to take slices of that area of the brain over time and stain the areas that have dopamine in them and dopamine receptors in them, you would see that there's less and less and less as time goes on. And that leads to the typical symptoms of Parkinson's, tremor, shuffling gait, um, less facial expression, so on and so forth. But then further down the line, or maybe in the beginning for some people, there are psychiatric symptoms and eventually dementia as well. There's actually research in human trials where CBD showed an improvement in the psychiatric symptoms and the REM sleep behavior disorder in patients with Parkinson's disease. So this is research in humans showing that CBD helped treat the psychiatric symptoms and the sleep disorder associated with Parkinson's. And it's just shocking to me that it's not used more frequently for this purpose because Parkinson's can be a really challenging disease to treat because all of the medications that you're using essentially have an expiration date for the patient. And you know that once you start using uh, carbidopa levodopa, you know that within a few years, it's going to be less effective, potentially not effective at all. And now that time frame can be, you know, manipulated if you're a very skilled neurologist and you're using just the right dose and you're timing it just right and you're combining it with other medications. But by and large, you know that with time, the main drug that we use for Parkinson's is going to become less and less effective. And it's, it's, a, it's outrageous that we have this other thing that could help, not with the movement disorders, not with the movement component of Parkinson's, but with everything else. And it's not being used. It's yeah. really unfortunate. And the research isn't there, you know, going back to the previous episode, because cannabis was used by blacks and Hispanics and Filipinos. Think about yeah. all of the research that could have been done, you know, for decades. Who knows where mm-hmm. we'd be right now? Yeah. You know? Sad. Finally, talking about CBD being used in particular diseases, there mm-hmm. is some evidence that CBD plays a role in certain types of cancer, but this is extremely preliminary evidence, you know? Yeah. Say, so, you know, this is kind of interesting. I hear this a lot from patients. Really? And it can actually be somewhat problematic. I'm actively treating a patient I saw today. Very unfortunately, she's, she's, uh, she's suffering from cancer herself. And she is, thankfully, going along with, you know, the gold standard treatments, the, the chemotherapy, the radiation. But she's constantly 
bringing this up. And I can understand why. The main things that we use for cancer are horrible. The side effects are horrible. The thought process that we have for treating cancer is, all right, the thing that's bad, the cancer, is growing really fast. So let's stop everything from growing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, let's stop you from growing. Let's stop your hair from growing. Let's stop your nails from growing. Let's stop your bone marrow from working. Folate inhibitors inhibit the growth of cells. And then radiation is just a huge gun. It kills anything in its path. It would be wonderful if there was this other way. And so she's, so people are constantly bringing this up to me. And it's a nice, to be, to be honest, it's, it's a nice fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think it needs to be researched more, but it doesn't seem like, correct me if I'm wrong, it doesn't seem like the research is there now. No, no, absolutely not. There's some studies in cells, like not even in animals, that show mm-hmm. that CBD can cause apoptosis in some types of cancer cells. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's a seed to grow from, you know? Yeah. So, And we should mention regarding cancer, the the receptor treatments, hopefully, yeah. you know, are more mm-hmm. promising than the traditional methods where we just basically take you to the brink of death and hope the cancer goes away and that you yeah. don't go away. So. Yeah, I, I'm always reticent to, to talk about those because yes, they, they're extremely promising and yes, they work, but they're incredibly expensive, only available in certain areas and only to certain people who have certain types of insurance and sometimes maybe just people who have a, a whole lot of money. But yeah, the idea of taking your own immune cells out and arming them with what they need to to target the cancer cells, it's wonderful, and yeah. you know, but it is a it, it, it's certainly an involved process. And even then, you know, the promise of something natural and of something gentler is certainly compelling for patients. Now, and I think that's why they kind of jump to cannabis as a potential uh, solution. I want to say two things. Uh, first, I'm going to say something crazy, but I'm going to leave it in here. I think. All right. I've had this idea ever since I learned how inflammation works and how the body heals itself mm-hmm. that potentially you could activate and this is like just crazy like sci-fi out there you could activate your immune system to target cancer specifically that's growing in your body without using medications but just maybe through psychotherapy or through thinking a certain way that'd be awesome yeah I, I mean, I definitely see where... There, Do you see so what I'm it, saying? It seems out there, if there's it's a, not that out there. If there's a way that you can, you know, gain control of your immune system mm-hmm. without outside influence... Theoretically, it's true. You could, you know, you could do the same things, you know? And so there's so, there's so many treatments that we use now that are paid for by Medicare, like acupuncture. Acupuncture, you are... I mean, there's a lot of different theories why acupuncture can work. Suffice it to say, it does wonders for certain patients. And one of the theories is you're you're instigating a small amount of local reactive inflammation in an area, which can then lead to healing. Right. And it's the same dry needling is another example of this. Even maybe a, right. something as simple as a massage, deep tissue massage, you're you're causing a level of inflammation yeah. that can then lead to healing. And so I don't think it's that out there. Exactly. Like what's another way that we can we try to modulate inflammation? psychotherapy even without mm-hmm. using medications for depression and anxiety like that's what you're trying to do essentially Part, i think know? there is really good evidence that that all like there there is an inflammatory component to a oh, lot of mental illness of course i mean i think that's I pretty think pretty much we could say all i think in my opinion because the body is very complicated and all the systems play a role in all the diseases you know people like yeah. to split them apart you know because we have different specialties but it's a mistake to 
then conclude that these are separate kind of things, you know? The, yeah. the inflammatory pathway is like intrinsic. It's like your blood vessels. You know what I mean? It's an intrinsic part of your body. It's how your body communicates. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's going to be If you were to ignore all the evidence that shows that like the huge correlation between inflammatory like bowel disease and and uh, depression and anxiety, you'd be insane. Yeah. So I, th- I definitely, I, it's it's out there. I'll, t- I'll, I'll give you that. It's a little, it's a little, we'll see. it's a little out there. But, you know, it's not as out there as certain things I've heard. And I think eventually, I'm sure there, there will be a way to do something along those lines. We'll see. So that's the first thing. That's the crazy thing. Anyway, that was a crazy thing. And then, the, and then what's the other? The other thing I wanted to say is um, how you were mentioning you had that patient that thinks that CBD is going like, to cure her cancer, essentially. You're alluding to a problem that the people behind pushing CBD, and I don't want to speak broadly about everybody because that would be very unfair, but kind of like when we talked in the episode about the electro sleep episode, they're taking these little seeds of actual evidence and they can say, you know, that there is evidence that it can, you know, treat whatever anxiety, pain, this, that, and the Mm -hmm. other thing. But it's not the same thing as saying that it does or that we have the kind of evidence that we need to recommend it. Right. Yeah. So I agree. a lot of businessmen and women out there are kind of jumping the gun and mm-hmm. purposely are not deceiving the public, you know, and that's something we got to be careful with. A patient mentioned a documentary to me that was about how uh, cannabis, not this particular patient in the, in, the, in the past, a patient mentioned a documentary about how cannabis can be used to fight cancer. So I watched it and First of all, I found out pretty quickly that the the funding for it certainly was dubious at best. Right. Most likely came from, yeah. uh, you know, the Somebody industry that's, that's yeah. hawking this stuff. Right. Secondly, they were using evidence that on the surface seemed extraordinarily persuasive, but actually preyed on the audience, audience's most likely not PhD level understanding of biological processes. So for example, in this documentary, and I'm not going to name it because I don't want to do that, but in this documentary, they were showing how if you take CBD oil and other um, endogenous cannabinoids and you put it on a slide with cancer cells, the cannabinoids will disrupt and kill the cancer cells. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about here. And And what they're not showing is that if you took those same cancer cells and you put alcohol right, on the exactly. side, the alcohol right. is going to disrupt the cancer cells. We're not talking about cancer cells on a slide. We're talking about cancer cells in your, in body. your body. That's the hard part. So I think that a lot of times a layperson sees that and they think, wow, this can really work. And it and it's sad because it's true and, and it's completely not applicable to your cancer. Right. Um, right. so, you know, I, I just want people to be aware that some of, some of these, uh, some of the information that's out there is very compelling. Yeah. Always be curious, always be critical, always be a little bit cynical, always try and figure out where the funding for the thing is coming from. Right. And, you know, if something seems too good to be true, if something's a panacea, if something can be used to treat everything, it probably treats close to nothing not in this case obviously we're going through and we're saying hey look it's promising in all of these ways but just generally speaking the more things something treats the less likely in my mind it is to be an excellent treatment for any of those things people who have a financial interest in selling this stuff are probably not going to tell you about the dangers of it right sure and there are dangers we mentioned some already like some side effects that you can have from cbd but something Mm -hmm. else that we have to talk about 
are drug interactions. Very important. Yeah. So we've kind of talked in other episodes how most drugs are metabolized in some way by the liver or sometimes just the kidneys or some combination Mm -hmm. thereof. And they're metabolized by various enzymes. And a lot of medications are metabolized by common enzymes, you know, the same enzymes, Mm -hmm. which inherently then creates some form usually of interaction where either one increases the dose of the other or lowers the dose of the other, or they both increase each other. All sorts of kind of wacky things can happen. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's really hard even for physicians to, you know, it, we can't memorize all of the interactions. There's thousands mm-hmm. of medications out there. You know, it's just something yeah. that we have to be cognizant of, right? Yeah. Oftentimes we rely on patients to tell us, you know, because, you know, a patient will start a new medication and then they'll come back in and they'll say this effect of this medication that I've been taking for years, either I'm not noticing it at all anymore or it's just way too strong. And then you really have to start thinking, okay, is this working on the same enzyme? You know, could there be an interaction there? Yeah. And there are some interactions with CBD and common medications. So Mm -hmm. CBD is metabolized primarily by CYP2C19 and 3A4. It has a long half-life in the body of about 60 hours. That's a pretty long time. And, and, you know, we generally say for something to be out of your system, it takes five half-lives. Exactly. So So we're talking days. That's a long time. Right. And, for example, uh, CBD can raise the level of warfarin. That's dangerous. That, I mean, yeah, that's really dangerous. I mean, this is the this is a medication for those of you who don't know that you need to check on an extremely regular basis and keeping it in the right level is truly a life or death situation. Right. Yeah. Um it, there are whole industries of nurse practitioners who only do this. There are clinics the level, that yeah. only do warfarin and the fact that this can affect that is yeah. quite troubling. And I'm sure you saw in medical school, you know, the people that were playing that delicate balance where, mm-hmm. you know, they've had a stroke and so they're taking a blood thinner, but then they start to have, you know, GI bleeds, you know, start bleeding yeah. from the intestines and they almost die from that. And then they have to decide that, you know, do I, do I want to try to not have a stroke or do I want to try to not bleed out? And, you know, yeah. it's very complicated. And the physicians that have to handle that, you know, are taking, you know, serious matters into their hands you know yeah yeah so you know to think that you could be taking this stuff you know thinking it's some sort of quote-unquote natural thing which is a whole nother topic Mm -hmm. and it Mm -hmm. could increase the level of warfarin you know that could could cause you to bleed out you know yeah um it can raise the levels of antidepressants including prozac we talked yeah i think in the past about serotonin syndrome you know yeah it's not necessarily a good thing to, you know, raise the level of the antidepressant, right? Sure. You know, sure. that's yeah. a that's a very complicated thing that you want to, you know, do deliberately, not just happen because the person happens to be buying CBD off the street. Sure. Um, it can also raise the levels of Valium, a benzodiazepine, and Onfi, uh, a seizure medication, mm. and actually, it can cause. I read somewhere a threefold increase in onfi which is uh clobazam yeah that's that's really that's really terrifying that is nuts yeah you know (laughs) that is nuts yeah 
I mean, obviously, if you're if you're taking too much of these medications, at the very least, a threefold increase of a of an anti seizure medication is going to cause you to be sedated. Yeah, and that is not something that you want. Yeah, we we talked in the past how anti you know how benzodiazepines and you know anti seizure medications, most of which work on the GABA receptors, just like the benzos, they're sedating. They're dangerous medications in and of themselves. They can make you stop breathing in the middle of the night if you take too much, and especially if you mix it with other sedatives you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you know you could be accidentally doing this just by taking something that you think is kind of benign you know very scary there's actually some research we know that depakote with davalprox which we use as a mood stabilizer it's another one Mm. of the anti-seizure medications can be very toxic to the liver in theory so it's something that we have to check and Mm. there's evidence that combining cbd with depakote increases that enzyme elevation that we see with depakote so that's mm. something that we have to keep an eye on because we're going to be seeing a lot of patients that are using CBD. You know, we're going to have to just ask them. You know, if you have a patient yeah. on Depakote, you're going to have to ask them. You know, exactly. Are you are yeah. you smoking weed often? Are you using CBD? You know. Yeah. So I mean, you know, it's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's just trying to make a, a, a broader point. You know, that mm. anything that you put in your body is going to have some sort of effect on your body. You know, yeah. and sometimes the effects can be very dangerous and it's not something that you should just be taking lightly. And it doesn't matter if it's quote unquote natural yeah, which is or not, nonsense. you know, yeah. melatonin is something that our bodies make naturally and yet right. we take more of it and it certainly can have interactions. And, you know, it's, it's, you have to always be very careful about this stuff. Right. Another thing, pregnancy something we always have to keep in mind in medicine and Mm -hmm. you know we know that we use this medication we use that medication and then you know you get a patient who's either pregnant or trying to become pregnant and suddenly you have to pull out a whole new textbook you know because there's so many you you know so many medications can theoretically you know have detrimental effects in pregnancy right Mm -hmm. certainly psychiatric medications exactly yeah and it's it's it gets tricky something to think about you know if you're thinking of getting pregnant and you're using cbd off the street in animal studies and we know already that cannabis can be detrimental in pregnancy but in animal studies cbd has been shown to have a lot of really serious effects in pregnancy including Mm -hmm. death decreased body weight in the fetus, delayed sexual maturation in the child, and other long-term neurological and psychiatric changes. Yeah, so definitely something. If you're pregnant out and taking CBD, you know, go talk to your doctor and tell them about it, and you probably shouldn't be on it. And now, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's the top five tips about CBD. Tip number one. CBD is one of many compounds found in the cannabis plant called cannabinoids. It's the one found in the highest percentage, somewhere around 40%. It's separate from the psychoactive part of cannabis, which is THC. Most of the CBD that we get is actually from the hemp plant, which is a species of cannabis that is not psychoactive because of the low amount of THC. Number two, cannabis has a long and sordid history in this country that's laden with racism things like the marijuana tax act of 1937 just go to show how steeped the history of cannabis is with xenophobia and hatred for various ethnic groups in this country right and for that reason many people consider the term marijuana 
a racist term or a pejorative mm. term and we're using the term cannabis wherever we can you know to avoid feeding into that racist history tip number three there are already two medications on the market that use cbd epidiolex which is just cbd and is approved for two types of seizure disorders and nabiximols which are oral sprays that include CBD and THC, and they're approved outside the U.S. for spasticity and multiple sclerosis and cancer pain. Tip number four. Like every substance, there are side effects and things to know about cannabis and CBD. Cannabis can worsen psychosis and paranoia, and CBD has interactions with other medications. For example, it can raise the level of certain SSRIs in your blood, and it can increase the level of certain seizure medications in your blood by three times. Tip number five. Although much of the evidence with CBD is preliminary, it does show a lot of promise in several different fields of medicine. There's reason to believe that it can be useful in anxiety disorders. CBD has been shown, aside from acting on the endocannabinoid system, to have effects with serotonin, norepinephrine, and GABA, among other things. These are things that we often try to modulate as psychiatrists. And so there's, there's promise there for CBD. CBD also shows a lot of promise, preliminary, but promise in things that it's not normally associated with. For example, psychosis and mm -hmm. schizophrenia. Even Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's, we know mm. that CBD, because of its many mechanisms of action that it has, shows promise as a molecule that we might be able to use to treat a lot of these conditions in the future. All right, James, I think we're at the end. It's sad, but I think we are. One more thing I want to say. This episode, these two episodes were really a 30,000 foot view of CBD. You know, it was it was impossible for us to read the hundreds of articles written about CBD at this point. And we've covered so many different topics that in the future, we're going to dive a little deeper into some of these topics and on future podcast episodes to try to flesh it out a little bit more. The march of progress in medicine can be slow. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't look into these promising new treatments. Like Raf said earlier, you know, we want to be on the cutting edge. We always want to embrace new thinking new opportunities, new treatments. I think that's really like the spirit of this podcast. And uh, that's why we're that's why we're talking about these things, even if they're not the gold standard treatment. You know, they're exciting. They're new. They're promising. That's why we that's why we think it's worth talking about. Yeah. And the other half of the spirit of this podcast is you. Yes. On that note, if you're struggling with anything we talked about today, addiction, pain, any type of mental illness, we encourage you to get out there, get hooked up with a mental health professional in whatever way you can. If you're really struggling right now, you can call 1-800-273-HELP, or you can go to their nearest emergency room or call 911. Psychiatric conditions are not signs of weakness. They're not moral failings. They're medical and neurological disorders that can be treated. All right, until next time. Adios. Peace.